The genius of the ESG movement is they are able to find the pressure points. They're always looking for leverage. Who can we go to to essentially get leverage over these companies? It's the banking industry, it's the asset management industry, and it's the insurance industry. And if you can get these folks on board, you can control everything else. In this episode, I sit down with Kevin Stockland, writer and producer of The Shadow State, an Epoch TV documentary that investigates the industry of environmental, social, and corporate governance, also known as ESG. So if you're a farmer, you pretty much have to dance to their tune. And they have gone out and they've said, this is what we want you to do. This is how we want you to produce. These are the processes that we want you to follow if you're going to sell to us. How does the ESG mechanism work? Who are the players involved? And is there a way to push back? We're starting to see the power that private industry has to control us in a way that, in the West at least, the governments legally can't do. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Janja Kjellik. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year. And Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest-rated firms in the country, with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Kevin Stockland, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's high time, I think. And of course, you know, you've had the Shadow State documentary out for quite some time, and you've been writing on all issues related to ESG and so forth for us, for the Epoch Times for a while, where I've learned, I've learned a lot from your writing. But it's still kind of amorphous in a lot of people's minds. And it's, again, as a lot of things uh, in our current cultural moment, um, it sort of you know hides behind uh, highfalutin words or something like this, right? So explain to me what this is. We have to understand ESG uh, both as an ideology and as an industry. So as an ideology, there's this umbrella of, of progressive uh, issues, and it's everything from climate change and uh, reducing carbon emissions to social justice, racial equity. Um, economic equity worldwide and things like this. That's the ideology of it. But it's also an industry. It has tens of trillions of dollars behind it. Uh, and this, uh, these trillions are used to really arm twist corporate America into getting along with the, the program. I think the simplest way that people can understand ESG is that it's a way to use other people's money, effectively our money, to, to uh, impose a progressive agenda on the private sector and on the United States. It's almost hard to imagine how it is that a lot of corporate America has come to kind of be on board with all sorts of these, what turn out to be 
ideological agendas. So trace to me how that happened, because it certainly wasn't like that, you know, 20 years ago. The, the big picture of this is really kind of a shift in how Americans save their money, if I could just take a step back and, and put it that way. So there was a time when if you wanted to save for your retirement or your, your kid's college or, or to buy a house, you might buy shares in AT&T or GE or something like that. But over the past several decades, we've seen the rise of the fund industry, whether that's mutual funds or uh, ETFs or index funds or pension funds. And what this means is that there is now an entire industry between us and the company. So where before we would have been shareholders in AT&T, now we are no longer shareholders. We are what's called the end investor. We don't own shares in AT&T. We own shares in these funds. The fund managers, whether that's BlackRock or Vanguard or State Street or whoever, they're the ones who turn around and buy shares in these companies. They're the shareholders, and they have all of the votes when it comes to voting those shares. So in addition to that whole industry that's sprung up between us and, and the companies, we also have rating agencies, we have all sorts of nonprofit pressure companies, and they are able to act on these companies, even though it's our money that's funding the whole thing. They basically are the ones that have the votes, and they are able to put pressure on companies to essentially do what they want them to do. So it's the rise of these sort of middlemen, in a way, right? But obviously massively influential. In the case of BlackRock, I mean, it has, is it the, the level of assets of the U.S. economy or something like that under, under its management? I can't remember what it is, but it's some astronomical number that's almost unfathomable. Close to that. So depending on how the market's doing on any given day, BlackRock has between 8 and $10 trillion under management. The three largest index fund managers are BlackRock, uh, Vanguard, and State Street. And between the three of them, they have close to $20 trillion of assets under management. That's about equal to U.S. GDP. And just to give you, you know, some stats on this, so 75% of all the shares in U.S. companies are currently owned by these institutional asset managers versus private people going out and buying shares directly. But if you look at those top three asset managers, Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street, so about 90%, for about 90% of the companies in the S&P 500 today, they are the largest shareholders. One or some combination of those companies are the largest shareholders in those companies, whether it's Apple or Alphabet or whoever. So it just gives you a sense of the power that a very small number of these asset managers have over private industry. Well, and then there's this example of that power where, for example, the Exxon board was basically reorganized, from what I recall, by these asset managers. Do you remember this? Uh, yeah, it, so yeah. it was a very small, um, uh, very small activist uh, shareholder called Engine One. And their plan was that they wanted to put um, environmental activists on the board of Exxon. As we know, that's an energy company. They produce oil and gas. Um, and what they were able to do is leverage their relationships with BlackRock, with State Street, Vanguard, uh, also with some of the activist state pension funds, CalPERS and CalSTRS out in California, and put together a coalition of shareholders that, that essentially forced Exxon against the wishes of management to put these three activists on, on their board. And their goal was to divert Exxon away from producing oil and gas towards producing so-called renewable energy. I just want to comment on this a little bit of a mind work because I never imagined myself you know, imagining that, that Exxon would be coerced, could be coerced into doing anything, a company of that size and stature. 
the genius of the ESG movement, and, and we have to recognize how, how clever this movement actually is, is they are able to find the pressure points. And so they're able to find who can we go to to uh, essentially get leverage over these companies. And so that they found that you know, we can't talk to however many millions or billions of shareholders are out there or consumers or, or anyone else, but we can find these short list of asset managers and pension fund managers who actually pull the strings when it comes to shareholder votes. And so, yeah, they were, they were able to do this with a company as large as Exxon, one of the largest companies in the world. When we were talking offline, uh, you know, you were showing me how the World Wildlife Fund, for example, uh, uh, you know, how they think about this, uh, you know, in their own words. I thought this was absolutely fascinating. Let's roll that clip. We actually need collusion around sustainability at every level with every type of institution. Where do we start? Who do we work with? How do we work on these issues? This is new ground for us. So we decided we needed to map it out. There's 6.8 billion consumers, give or take, maybe closer to seven today. Do we work with all those? Do we work with the 1.4 billion producers of all these different products? Do we change the way they produce things? Or do we focus on the narrower neck, the pinch point in each of these commodities where 300 to 500 companies control 70 to 80% of each of those 15 commodities that we care about? We decided that this is the strategy that we could actually get our arms around. So it's kind of incredible. I mean, they're, they're talking about actual pinch points, figuring out if you can get the right leverage in the right places uh, in the system, for lack of a better term, you can actually exert an incredible amount of control and not even be that significant ostensibly in the system as long as you're playing on the same, ideolog the same ideological game, I suppose. Yeah, so th this is another case of, of someone, you know, in, in a moment of, of hubris saying the quiet part out loud. So first of all, he talks about collusion between companies, you know, which is illegal, but he's not worried about that. But the point is he's not concerned about the billions of consumers out there, right? The, 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 don't bother with them. Uh, n neither does he want to bother with all of the farmers out there who are actually producing beef in this case. They were trying to control the beef industry. So we're not concerned about them either. We're going to go to the very large food manufacturers and food processors. There's a, you know, very few of them that control you know, the buying and the selling of, of agricultural products. We're going to go to them and we're going to get them on our side. But it speaks to the underlying beliefs of this movement this, this, that the consumers, uh, us as consumers and us as farmers and us as, as you know, small-time uh, family-owned companies, we shouldn't have a voice in any of this. You know, we, we should not have a say in any of this. We should uh, do what we're told, essentially, by these key industry insiders. And so fundamentally, this is one of the most anti-democratic uh, movements that, that's ever arisen. You know, I, w I want to take a little, potentially a little bit of a tangent for a moment, because I remembered watching, uh, I rewatched The Shadow State recently, and I was reminded, or maybe I didn't even fully grasp, that Nestle has become the largest uh, food company in the world. I mean, that's fascinating. I, I knew about them from them from years ago because they were very interested in cornering water sources and, and things like that, which a lot of people were very, very, very concerned about. I remember I was at a conference, um, Primatological Society conference, a long time ago, and uh, you know one of my, uh, uh, I guess, advisors was actually the, the guy that was running UNICEF at the time, and he was comp He wanted to get me to put like some disparaging, 
remarks about Leslie's behavior, right, into my speech. I remember this. I was thinking, should I really do this? Do I really want to, you know, have, have Nestle on my case or something? Because you know, of course, they were there. There was definitely some questionable behavior, questionable behavior there. To fast forward to today, okay, and we have these, uh, you know, Agenda 2030 Sustainable Development Goal, right? And it seems like a company like Nestle is like completely on board. It signals a, a really huge shift over a relatively short period of time. Yeah, so uh, the food companies, you know, Nestle, you have, you know, Danone and, and uh, General Mills and companies like this, um, they are supplied by hundreds of thousands of, of small farmers, but they are, you know, kind of what's called a monopsony. They are, you know, a very small list of buyers. And so if you're a farmer, you pretty much have to dance to their tune. And they have gone out and they've said, you know, to their farmers, as a result of the ESG movement, this is what we want you to do. This is how we want you to produce. Uh, these are, are the processes that we want you to follow if you're going to, to, to sell to us. Now, if a farmer doesn't want to sell to Nestle, they're, they're kind of out of business unless they can build up some kind of local clientele that's going to buy their products. So farmers are really held hostage to this. But again, it speaks to the graph that that gentleman uh, put up that, you know, why should we bother with all the hundreds of thousands of small farmers when we can just go to Nestle and if we can get Nestle uh, on board with the agenda, you know, the farmers will follow suit because they have to. One of the things that this movement really hates is, is um, you know, animal agriculture, particularly beef. They feel that that's too polluting, but they also don't want things like synthetic fertilizers. Um, and so they're able to go to Nestle and companies like this and get them to lean on the farmers um, in addition to everything that's coming down through laws and stuff like that. You kind of make the case in the film that these sustainable development goals are, you know, driving a lot of this. That that, that that's this is an international institution, and these are international goals. Are things somehow coordinated around these sustainable development goals at the UN? Well, so ESG originated back in two thousand five at the UN, and what it was was that you know the UN has their sustainable development goals, environmental and social and economic and everything else. Um, but ESG developed as a way to get the private sector on board. So it's one thing for governments to make laws, but in a country like the United States, so much of, of our society is outside of government control. It's privately owned companies and you know, private decisions made by individuals. So the whole ESG movement uh, was set up to address the question, how do we get the private sector on board with this ideology while, while we're getting government in lockstep with the ideology? And so those are the roots of the ESG movement. And then, you know, the World Economic Forum set up a strategic partnership with the UN and said, you know, we're going to push this as well. And through that, you have uh, WEF members such as BlackRock and organizations like this that are happy to then filter it down. But again, the, the genius of the movement is this search for these pinch points, as they say, or leverage points. And finance is really that. So it's the banking industry, it's the asset management industry, and it's the insurance industry. And if you can get these folks on board, you can control everything else. Uh, Kevin, why don't we get you to tell me a little bit about how you came to be thinking about all these things. I mean, you yourself were in finance, and from what I understand, quite liking it. So how, do, how did you come to, to, to be doing what you're doing? Uh, well, I'll try to give you the short version, um, but you know, my, my career in finance actually started in a, pr 
Prague. I was working with Citibank there. And uh, that, to me, that was such an education because this was as they were rebuilding a, a, an open society, a, a democratic system, and a free market system. So this is right after 89. Yes, right exactly, okay. in the early 90s, and, and recovering from socialism and communism and decades of that. Um, and all the things they had to do to, to do that, to you know, have a, set up a currency and a legal system and property rights and, and let people have faith in the system so they could go and start their own companies and, and actually feel that they could, with confidence, even speak freely and stuff like that. So I was watching them try to rebuild this system from scratch. And uh, after that, I moved back to New York and worked in Wall Street. But today, what I'm witnessing is that we are working in reverse in many ways in this country. We're re-centralizing authority. Uh, we are losing speech rights and property rights. And so uh, that got me to start you know, investigating and, and, and writing and speaking out on these kind of issues. But specifically with ESG, Company after company, whether that's Coca-Cola, whether that's Disney, whether that's Target or Anheuser-Busch, they're starting to behave in very strange ways. They're doing things that are alienating huge portions of their customer base. They're wading into these very controversial political issues. For example, Coca-Cola decided to fight the state of Georgia over voter ID laws when the overwhelming majority of every racial category supported that. So the question in my mind was, why are these companies behaving in such a strange way? It's so punitive for shareholders. It's, it's hurting their sales. It's, it's destroying brands. And so to me, that was the question that brought me into the ESG industry. Why would companies behave in such an irrational way? And when you realize that they actually are behaving very rationally, they are doing what their shareholders want them to do. And again, even though it's our money, we're just the end investors. We're not the shareholders anymore. So all of those trillions of dollars uh, are, are going through these small asset managers. They are the shareholders. And these companies are responding to what the shareholders want them to do. And small asset managers, just to clarify, that's, that's BlackRock? Or you said it's going through these small asset managers? The, the, well, the, the, the large asset managers. So, oh, okay. yeah, okay. The, you know, those are the, the big players. I mean, and we always single out BlackRock just because they are the largest and, and have been one of the most vocal. But they're not the only one by far. Quite a few other asset managers are on board with this and state pension funds and everybody else. So BlackRock has really just become the lightning rod, but they're not behaving that much differently from many other asset managers today. I do have uh, this clip that you uh, you sent me a, a few days ago um, with Larry Fink kind of talking about the mentality or the approach that's used precisely in this context, right? So I want to roll that clip. Well, behaviors are going to have to change, and this is one thing we're going to, we're asking companies. Uh, you have to force behaviors, and at BlackRock we are forcing behaviors. 54% uh, of the incoming class are women. We, we added four more points in terms of diverse uh, employment this year. And it, if it, it, you know, what we are doing internally is if you don't achieve these levels of impact, it, your compensation could be impacted, okay? We're doing it, the same thing. And so it's just, it, you have to force behaviors. And if you don't force behaviors, whether it's gender or race or just any way you want to say the composition of your team, you're going to be impacted. And that's not just not recruiting. It is development, as Ken said. And ultimately, 
it's still going to take time, but I am just as much shocked as Ken is that we have not seen more opportunities, and we're going to have to force change. For, well, a few things. First of all, he's talking about how we have to be into everything, even stuff we don't like, which is interesting, right? And then he's talking about, you know, the thing that we can use is our vote, and then he's talking about forcing behaviors. Wow. Yeah, what, what made uh, these firms as rich as they are and as big as they are was, was the, the rise of the index funds. And an index fund, you basically buy every company in an index. So if it's the S&P 500, you, you go out and you buy those 500 companies. And the point that Larry Fink is making is, you know, if I don't like what Exxon is doing, I can't divest out of Exxon. They're in the S&P 500 index, so I have to own them. So the only power that he really has as an asset manager is the shareholder vote. And again, this is a case of saying the quiet part out loud because these proxy votes, a proxy vote is BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, and pension funds voting on our behalf, voting on the behalf of the end investors. So that's where the power is, and that's explicitly what he said in this interview. That is the power that I have, and I'm going to use it to, to the nth degree. In addition to the asset managers, uh, there are the proxy advisors, and this is a Duopoly. There are two companies, ISS um, and Glass-Lewis, and together they have about 98% of the proxy advisory vote. What do they do? Well, all of the state pension funds that cannot necessarily research the tens of thousands of shareholder votes that may come up across their whole portfolios, they go to these advisory companies and they say, how should we vote on this issue? And the advisory companies advise them. Well, it turns out both of these, uh, these proxy advisory companies are supporting all of these sustainability goals. And they've come out and said, well, they don't have to follow our advice necessarily. But it turns out more than 90% of the time, all of these state pension funds and all these other asset managers do follow their advice. So it speaks to the power of the proxy vote and how you are able to control corporations through this system. So and explain to me how these asset managers kind of have gotten behind this ideology. And you mentioned the World Economic Forum. And of course, you know, the World Economic Forum is sort of a favorite, you know, punching bag almost these days. You know, it's like it, you, people ascribe all sorts of things to them. And what are they? What role do they actually play in influencing this behavior? You know, it's very interesting to try to, to assess the motives in all this, um, you know, what drives them. And there certainly is a profit motive. So it's, it's very good to be in business with the government, you know, when it came to handing out a lot of the, the COVID relief funds. BlackRock was chosen as, as really the, the gatekeeper of, of who's going to get money and stuff like this. Um, you know, there's a revolving door between the Biden administration and BlackRock. Officials are moving, you know, very much back and forth. So the ties are very close. To what extent are these um, people true believers that they actually believe that these are worthy goals? I think a lot of them do. I think a lot of them may feel that because of climate change or because of, uh, you know, racial inequities that they are, you know, doing God's work or, or acting morally and that they are, you know, kind of the high priests of, of society in some ways. So, you know, I think there are some true believers as well. But it's nice that uh, companies that go along and they play ball, you know, they, they tend to do very well. The government shines on them. The government doesn't regulate them. The government doesn't question their monopolistic positions. Government might give them a lot of subsidies and things like this. So it's a combination of, of goodwill and, and profit-seeking.
that the reverse is also true. Like the ones that don't play ball may suddenly invite some regulatory oversight that seems to be called for, right? Just right. We've seen cases of that too. So Elon Musk is is high profile example of that. Um, suddenly he acquires Twitter and Twitter becomes a, a free speech platform. Then suddenly he's subject to a government investigation. Isn't that interesting? And also his ESG rating, you know, uh, Twitter and, and even Tesla, right, which makes EVs, you would think this would be, uh, you know, at the top of the ESG scores. Tesla is well, well below companies like GM, you know, which makes predominantly internal combustion engine cars. But GM is willing to play ball. GM is willing to, to build the EV factories. GM is willing to say, we're going to convert our, our fleet to electric cars within the next decade. Um, and, and then you have Elon Musk, who makes exclusively electric cars, but he's doing all this nasty stuff with Twitter, letting people say what they want to say. So he's being punished for that. Of course, it was kind of nuts for Bud Light to do that particular marketing campaign with Mulvaney, right? I mean, just like make no sense, no sense at any level, except that keep your ESG score up. Yeah, and there, there are outside pressure groups as well. So, you know, the Human Rights Campaign uh, has been very active rating companies. They have their corporate equality index, um, and you want to score high on that. You know, if you're a CEO, that's essentially going to make your life a whole lot easier. You know, Disney is an interesting case study. Um, you know, Disney has been kind of destroying their brands for, for years now, whether that's Star Wars or Indiana Jones or, or, or Snow White, pursuit of the progressive stories that they feel that, you know, it's important to them to tell. But the cost of this, uh, cost of this to Disney is losing subscribers, is losing visitors to their park, their sales are down, you know, their share price is down. None of this is good for the end investors. It may be fine for the shareholders. BlackRock doesn't care either way about the share price. They're going to get their fees either way. You know, an issue came up with Florida parents' rights laws, and basically the law essentially said, you know, don't teach or, or raise or discuss sexual topics to kids in school between kindergarten and third grade. Eh, most people would think that's just not too crazy. Most parents seem to support that. And initially, Bob Chapek, as the CEO of Disney, said, we're going to stay out of this. This is, this is not, you know, we, we're a media company. This is not our thing. As time went on, he got so much pressure from uh, some internal employees, but, you know, we weren't privy to those conversations. Presumably, he got some pressure from out, some outside groups as well. And he was forced to change his ways and jump in and, and fight Florida over this. And, you know, this has turned out to be a huge mess. He lost his job a few months after that. Uh, and the new CEO, Bob Iger, the returning CEO, but the replacement, said, you know, hey, we wish we were never dragged into that controversy as if anybody ever dragged them in. So this is a case study of how a CEO, you know, is trying to run a company profitably and is being dragged into, you know, arm-twisted effectively into jumping into these highly controversial uh, political issues that end up costing them sales and costing them profits and hurting their share price. So these companies will have activists themselves, and they know they've got kind of the weight of the system behind them, so they can be very vocal and they'll get supported. Then you have these activist organizations that have indices like Human Rights Campaign, you mentioned exactly, on kind of on the same team. Then you have a company like Vanguard or BlackRock also exercising their vote to, to push the same agenda. Then you have government 
uh, or at least the administrative state saying, yes, this is exactly what you need to do. And don't worry, we won't regulate you. So all of this is essentially working all exactly in the same direction. The only thing that's working in the opposite direction is the consumer. Yeah, so it, there's been this philosophical shift behind all this. So initially, the philosophy, if you're managing a company, is what's called shareholder capitalism. You manage a company for the owners, right? You manage a company to maximize profits and maximize the share price for the benefit of the owners. Now, there were some problems with this. There were some externalities with pollution and things like this. But the idea was that it imposed discipline on a company. You know, it was a very quantitative, clear assessment of you know, what your job is and, and whether or not you're performing your job. But there was a shift to now, now it's called stakeholder capitalism. And everybody got on board with this. This was officially approved by the business uh, roundtable of Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, was the head of the business roundtable at this time, and announced we're shifting now to stakeholder capitalism. So instead of managing the company for the benefit of the shareholders, we're going to manage it now for the benefit of the stakeholders. Well, who are the stakeholders? That's the employee. It's everybody. It's the employees. It's your neighborhood. It's the environment. It's, you know, whatever activists may be out there. I'll, I'll just mention, and in many cases, as we've learned uh, on this show throughout the years, it's communist China. It's also a stakeholder. In right. some cases. Yeah. Yeah, they can mm -hmm. be. Now, what's interesting about this, however, uh, there, there are two, uh, two elements of society that have absolutely no say anymore. They are the consumers who buy these products, and they are the end investors, the people who put up the money. So those two have been uh, completely boxed out of this whole process. Which is counterintuitive. Yes. One thing that is so important that we need to kind of understand about U.S. society, you know, it's not just uh, political freedom, it's economic freedom as well. And that's what we're losing here as consumers and as savers, you know, that we've lost our vote in terms of what we want to buy and, and, and what, what we want to have you know, supplied to us, what kind of food we want to eat, what kind of cars we want to drive. And we've lost our vote as, as investors as well because now we're end investors. We're, we're not uh, shareholders anymore. I just want to touch on something you mentioned a little earlier, and that was you said for BlackRock, you know, they collect their fee anyway. They don't actually care about the value of the company. H how can that be? Explain that. Yeah. Well, if I'm an asset manager, I'm paid a fee on, on investments in my fund. So I would like that fund to go up, you know, because if it goes up 10%, my fee is 10% higher. If it goes down 10%, my fee is 10% lower. But I'm still getting a fee either way. Um, on the other hand, if I'm an end investor and Anheuser-Busch's share price tanks by 20%, that's a loss to me directly. I've lost that much money. And uh, you know what people often can think of shareholders as well. They're these you know kind of wealthy Wall Street fat cats, and why should we care about them? No, the shareholders is us. The, the, these are retirees, whether we're, whether we're saving for pensions or college or, or or to buy a house or whatever. This is our savings, and so what it means is when a company's share price is less valuable, um, we have less money for retirement. We have less money to be able to pay for education or buy a house or do anything else that we want to do with our savings. Um, and so, so the, the pain when a share price tanks like that is felt by us much more than an asset manager that may have 500 companies across the S&P 500 in their portfolio. Well, and this is a good 
explanation to some extent why, for example, BlackRock might be pushing all sorts of money into a, you know an incredibly exposed place, creating a lot of unnecessary exposure for for its shareholders. Um, because I get I guess they get paid anyway, and if they get paid a lot by Communist China, which by the way they do, like actually huge amounts, um, that changes the equation somewhat. It does, and the interesting thing about ESG funds is they actually tend to get higher fees. And the reason is that uh, an index fund is what's called passive fund. They just go and they buy the index, and you can kind of automate that to some extent. But if you are looking at an ESG fund, you have an asset manager that's actively going and choosing companies. They're assessing how compliant they are with mm -hmm. ESG. So those tend to be higher fee funds, and asset managers tend to get paid a higher fee if it's an ESG fund versus just a straight index fund. So, you know, there's certainly a motivation. And the trend had been really towards the index funds because they are lower fee funds and they perform, as it turns out, just as well as the managed funds. ESG was a way to kind of revive the asset management industry. So now we have a new opportunity to earn those fat fees that we were losing by everybody shifting to index funds. So I think that was also kind of part of the motivation. And then there's a whole industry that now is earning you know, their income from this. There's all the ESG um, rating agencies that now exist. And attached to them are ESG consultancies. So you can hire ESG consultants to advise you how you can get your ESG scores up. The ESG accountants, now we are going to be seeing green accounting according to the new SEC regulations. So there's a whole industry. So a lot of people's livelihoods are now dependent on keeping this ESG business going. We've seen the, these backlashes, we've seen Target, we've seen Bud Light. It has to do with you know, just kind of people becoming aware of outrageous behavior. Well, there are, there are isolated cases of that. Um, you know, Bud Light is, is probably the most um, high profile example right now and Target, uh, Disney to some extent. Um, the issue is that those are consumer-facing companies, and uh, you know Disney caters to families, right? That they're a family entertainment company, um, and and Bud Light also has has their clientele. Um, so in these cases, they they were really hurting themselves by taking on these political campaigns. Um, on the other hand, you have a company like Nike that probably actually did well from their support of Colin Kaepernick and all of the positions that they've taken. So it really does vary, but. Here's a case in point on, on consumer choice. So Ford, for example, um, you know, they make all their money from you know, these big trucks and SUVs. And, and, and uh, so they are being pressured to now shift their fleet to EVs. How are they being pressured? One, um, there's new EPA emissions regulations that are coming out that basically the only way that they can comply is that two-thirds of their fleet within the next 10 years will be EVs. Two, there are uh, tens of billions of dollars of subsidies coming out for them to build EV plants and then to transition to EVs. Uh, so Ford has lost 4.5 or will lose $4.5 billion on their EV fleet uh, in 2023. This is a huge money loser for them. Consumers don't seem to want these things. But here's a company that is being pushed to, to do this transition. And where is the consumer's voice in this? So if I want to go out and buy an internal combustion engine car, the strategy is within the next decade, they just won't be available. Um, or they'll have to go up in price so much because they're subsidizing all the losses that they're, that they're incurring on their EV fleets. So in this way, uh, consumers are, are losing their choice. And it's not that there's a ban that says you can't buy internal combustion engines anymore. 
It's just nobody's really making them. And they're doing the same thing with gas stoves, you know, the, the new regulations that are coming out there. Um, you know, all sorts of new regulations on refrigerators and dishwashers and washing machines. And consumers are starting to see all these products that they like and they value suddenly disappearing because manufacturers can't make them anymore. On a number of American Thought Leaders episodes, we've talked about something called luxury beliefs. You can enjoy having these beliefs without any personal, a lot of personal cost. In fact, with a lot of personal benefit for participating in all the ways that we've just been describing, right? Because if, you know, you don't want to get on the wrong side of human rights campaign, for example, or at any number of other of these rating agencies because they uh, control, you know, a huge potential backlash, right? All, they can activate an incredible number of activists to make your life absolutely miserable. To my mind, uh, the Achilles heel uh, of this whole movement is, is simply shedding light on it. It's simply to ask questions um, and, and look at the economics of, you know, how, how is this actually supposed to work? So, you know, we can, can look at EVs, for example. What we know is uh, the consumer demand doesn't seem to be there. The, these things are being backed up on dealer lots. They're, they're not selling uh, anywhere near the numbers that, that the Biden administration wants them to. The auto companies are not going to be able to source these raw materials to even build these things in those kind of numbers. Why? Because you, you have to mine cobalt and lithium and all these other rare earths to make these batteries, and it all goes through China. You know, the majority of these things are all refined in China. And you just, uh, at this point, the mining industry is saying, we just can't do enough strip mining and enough destruction uh, you know, to, to get you enough lithium and cobalt and all of these other you know, minerals that you need to build these things. And then the third thing is when we look at the electric grid, um, you know, I'd spoken to some folks at uh, the FERC and the NERC. The NERC basically is in charge of monitoring the reliability of the North American electric grid. They said there's not a single region in North America that has the capacity to charge, uh, you know, these EVs in these kind of numbers. So, you know, we look at this and just by asking the questions, like economically, how is this actually supposed to work, this transition to EVs, the whole narrative starts to fall apart. And then you can even go farther and say, well, how is this helping the environment? Because you're strip mining, you're poisoning rivers, you're polluting the air to, to extract all these minerals. Uh, it's very often done with, with slave or child labor in places like Democratic Republic of Congo. To make one EV battery, um, you have to move about 250 tons of earth to get all the minerals that you need. And that out of that, you get about 50 usable tons that you will then ship to China, uh, again, uh, using fossil fuels, that will then be refined in China, generally using coal-fired plants, more CO2 emissions. And then you ship it back to the US, where it's going to be assembled. By the time you've done all this, you have produced so much CO2 that will, you will have to drive that car generally for about six to eight years before you break even with an internal combustion engine car. So we're not even helping the environment. So it's a long answer, but I think to actually start just looking and asking questions about how is this ideology good for anybody, um, it starts to fall apart pretty quickly. As I understand it, right, according to the ideology, the way people who are pushing this stuff justify it to themselves is we're doing something right, and what, this is just the collateral damage of our, you know, moving towards our utopian society or the correct view, or, or this, you know, the proposed outcome of the fourth industrial revolution as it's been described. Again, the idea is if to make an omelet, you have to break a few eggs. 
Well, you know, ESG is fundamentally, it is a central planning ideology. It's the idea that smart people and experts should be coming up with the plan and, and the rest of us, you know, it's our job to follow. So whether that's, you know, whatever they're doing with the cities or whatever they're doing with the automotive industry or fossil fuels or whatever, it's a central planning ideology. You know, central planners brought us concepts like collective farming, uh, which produced famine and led to tens of millions of deaths in, in Russia. Um, and then after they'd done that, they 20 years later or 30 years later, they did it again in China, even having seen how damaging it is. Um, so the collateral damage is often immense. Um, you know, we're already seeing the collateral damage in the United States with the increase of prices and inflation and uh, the unaffordability of food and gas and all these basic things. It flows through the entire economy. So it's uh, to see the war on fossil fuels, it's not just affecting the price at the gas pump. You know, farmers use diesel. Uh, they also use uh, fertilizers, which are a derivative of natural gas. So their prices go up. Um, and then food kind of becomes unaffordable. And, and so this is, this is the result that we're seeing um, for all of the best intentions, if, if they're even that. Well, and but the unspoken thing is that, you know, our energy use needs to go down. A number of people have argued that it's a kind of a naturist philosophy, like the humanity is actually the blight, the blight on the earth. So it needs to, we need to kind of prevent that blight. You know, currently, you know, we've got close to, I guess, 8 billion people on the earth, and uh, nearly half of them are, are fed by um, synthetic, synthetic uh, fertilizers, which are a derivative of natural gas. So if you take that out of the equation, you know, we just can't feed the, the people that are on this earth today. So Sri Lanka tried it, as you point out in the documentary, right? Yes. Famine ensued. So they, they followed the UN directives. They did what the ESG industry wants them to do. They banned the import of synthetic fertilizers. And within a year, their, their crop yields collapsed. And uh, they were facing famine and starvation. And the government actually was, was overturned and, and booted out of the country as a result of that. You know, we're much more efficient here uh, in the West, and so we're not really seeing the effects to that extent. But we are seeing prices go up, and we are seeing farmers in places like the Netherlands and even Canada being pressured to go out of business if, for example, they're beef farmers and things like this. In the Shadow State documentary, you know, Alex Newman, actually a regular contributor to the Epoch Times, makes the case that centralized planners, and we'll use that term because you used it earlier, Basically, you know, they kind of create crisis so they can be the solution for that crisis, right? And he uses Venezuela as the example, and he says, look at what happened there. That's kind of the outcome of ESG programs. Is that, is that really a reasonable assertion? It is. So what he's talking about is uh, when the government gets involved in the economy, um, and the government is a very poor uh, manager when it comes to, to private assets and investment, but when the government gets involved in the economy, the result is inevitably you divert resources from what consumers want. And the result of that is shortage. As a result, prices tend to go up. So this is what we're seeing in the US uh, you know, with fuel and with food and things like this. Well, the next step that the government will follow is they will say, who did this to us? Uh, it's these greedy capitalists. They're making too much profits, and we need price controls. So now the government has stepped in, and now they're going to control the pricing mechanism. Um, and of course, we know when we set price controls, the result of that is more shortage because people are not going to produce things if they can't make a profit. And so it tends to get into an even deeper crisis then, and every solution is always 
the government needs to step in and solve this, whether it's subsidies, whether it's price controls, uh, more taxes so that we can pay people so they can afford to buy food and gas or whatever. So it is very much a, a vicious cycle and, and always the solution to the problem is more government, government intervention. And we're, we're hearing this even now, you know, from people like Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. It's these greedy oil companies and they're, they're making too much profits and we need to get them and we need to set, you know, price controls on them and, and stop them from making profits, completely ignoring the fact that you've been working on them for the past few decades, getting them to produce less oil. That's the whole point of the ESG movement. And but does that um, end up in a society that, you know, is on the so-called Maduro diet, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, in in specific cases, uh, and hopefully we never get that far here. But the, you know, in the case of Venezuela, that was it. You know, that was a very very wealthy country. That was one of the richest countries in South America at one point. They have huge oil wealth and a very prosperous middle class. And now there's people that are starving in there, and they're trying to import or get across the border to get food and medical supplies and things like this. And we've seen that on a bigger scale in countries like China and Russia, the famine that results and you know, all of the societal dysfunction. With a large country, tens of millions of people can die as a result of this. So history tells us this is how this game ends, and it's a shame that we have to, to relive it again and again, but that seems to be the case. Looking again at this globally coordinated, apparently, pandemic response that we had, particularly lockdown-type policies, you know, destroying all the economies that participated, or at least, you know, somewhat destroying them, um, it, it, it seems to fit into this whole ESG construct perfectly. What's your reaction to that? Uh, it speaks to the darker side of ESG, and that is uh, the, the collaboration and the partnership between large corporations and government. So COVID was a, a fascinating case study. These policies that came out of government, all of these lockdown policies, who did they apply to? You know, they, they didn't shut down Amazon. They didn't shut down Walmart. They didn't shut down Target. No, they closed all of the small little mom and pop shops. They closed restaurants and bars, you know, family-owned businesses. And, and, and they went out of business. And so what you, you saw was a shift of wealth from kind of small-time uh, business owners and family owners and things like this uh, to these big corporations. Who, who made the profits off of COVID? Uh, Apple and Amazon. Walmart, uh, you know, all of these big companies did very well. They had record profits um, off of that whole policy. And again, um, all of these small business owners, whether they own restaurants or whatever, very difficult to control them. Um, there's just too many of them, and they, they don't necessarily buy into the ideology. But you can work with an Amazon, and you can work with Apple and get them on board. And, and it shows that for companies that play ball, Hey, there, there, there's a lot of profitability here. You know, there's a lot of upside to being one of the insiders in this whole game. But even the more pernicious element is the fact that this partnership uh, has allowed or, or created a situation where corporations have really kind of become executioners. 
for government. So one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest impediments for the ESG movement is the United States. It's our constitution. It's all these limits that we've placed on government and our Bill of Rights. It says the government can't censor and it can't take your property away and it can't surveil you. Now, corporations can do all this and they have been doing it on the government's behalf. And so this is really the dark side of the ESG movement. And so we're seeing the tech industry, for example, censoring Americans, um, censoring Americans during COVID, any commentary questioning uh, the source of the virus or the vaccines uh, or things like this was censored. It was not censored by the government. It was censored by YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. Um, in terms of surveillance, you know, we have the Fourth Amendment that says the government can't do unreasonable search and seizure. They need a warrant. They need some proof of a crime before they go and, and search people's houses or their private information or whatever. But the banks have all this information and they routinely hand it over to the government. So we saw you know, around January 6th, uh, Bank of America is now accused of data mining all of their customer accounts. No evidence of a crime of any specific uh, customer but who was in Washington at this time? Who, who might, have, might have bought a, a firearm around this time? And so handing over a short list of customers to the FBI and the DOJ of you know, who among our, our customers might have behaved this way. You know, we saw a case with the credit card companies that they now want to start tracking firearms purchases. You know, all of this is, is, is legal behavior, right? You, you, you can go out and you can buy a firearm. We have the Second Amendment. And what about the banks? closing trucker as in trucker affiliated sure. people during the Freedom Convoy. Well that that in a way was the most blatant example of the power of, of the finance industry over people. So it was the truckers in Canada and they were protesting the COVID vaccines and, and the various uh, policies. How did the government get them to stop? It went to the banks and it said freeze their accounts, right? Cut off their access to their own money cut off their credit cards so they can't buy anything, they can't buy food, they can't buy fuel. They're suddenly, overnight, instantly impoverished. They have no money, they have nothing. So the government can't do that, but the banks can, and they did. And so in this way, we're starting to see the power that private industry has to control us in a way that, in the West at least, the governments legally can't do. Notably, you know, I've had on the show a number of people involved in the state basically using the power of the purse of the state to, to limit some of these policies, basically saying, if you're going to be doing this ESU stuff, you're not working for us, right? So, so how has that evolved? Yeah, so this is where the pushback is coming. It's all coming from the state level, and it's coming uh, in a couple of forms. Um, one, you are seeing a lot of state asset managers, state treasurers, uh, state financial officers saying, uh, if you're pushing these policies, we don't want to do business with you in our state. You're, you're not going to manage money for us. You're not going to get any, any banking contracts and things like this. And for some states, it's a matter of life and death. I mean, if you're, if you're West Virginia and your banks are saying, you know, we're not going to lend any money to the coal industry or we're an asset manager saying we're going to cut off the coal industry, you know, that, that's going to cost you jobs. That's going to cost you people's livelihoods. Texas is another example of that. So these states are pushing back at that level. The other way that they're pushing back is state attorney generals are actually starting to say, hey, we need to enforce U.S. laws. And there's two ways that this whole movement is highly illegal. 
One is antitrust. So according to the Sherman Antitrust Law and, and other antitrust laws in the United States, it is illegal for companies to collude with each other to uh, take down another company or another industry. Well, what could be a more obvious example of collusion than joining the Net Zero Banking Alliance or the Net Zero Asset Managers Alliance or the Net Zero Insurance Alliance? You know, these are all UN climate clubs where they pledge that they are going to reduce the use of fossil fuels across their entire portfolios. So we're seeing state AGs start to bring, or it looks like they're doing discovery for some antitrust actions um, against some of these companies. And then the second uh, way that they've been violating the law is on civil rights. So uh, not only are federal civil rights laws, but a lot of state civil rights laws prohibit uh, discrimination on the basis of race or gender or nationality. Um, and if you have corporate quotas, for example, that say, you know, X percent of our new employees are going to be from a certain racial group or a certain gender group, you know, all of that is illegal. And the Supreme Court has just reemphasized that point with, with Harvard University. So we're going to start seeing some actions there as well. And I find it very interesting that uh, just recently there was, uh, I believe, 23 state attorney generals, um, as well as the House Oversight Committee, uh, sent letters off to the UN uh, Net Zero Insurance Alliance saying, hey, what are you guys up to? We'd like to understand how this organization works. And virtually immediately, about half the members, the insurance companies who were members, resigned. And they quit the club. And I find that very interesting that a simple letter that says, hey, what are you guys actually up to over there, causes half the membership to just say, hey, we're out. You know, they say sunlight is the best disinfectant, right, um, is so incredibly important. But a lot of this is often hidden beside, behind all sorts of opaque structures, and it's, not, it's, it's kind of very difficult to penetrate sometimes. Yeah, the, I mean, the finance world is very opaque, and, and for people who, who are just investing their money, uh, you know, it's difficult for them to understand how does this all work and the proxy advisors and, the, you know, the, 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 the size of these asset managers. So that's why we, we made the shadow state was really to, to, to lift the hood up and, 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 as you say, shine a light and, and let people know, you know, in fairly intelligible terms, this is what the industry is, this is what their goals are, this is how it works and this is how it affects you. Um, it is an arcane system, but it's not that difficult to understand. Let's say you're not a state AG or a state controller. Um, you're just a consumer. Um, you don't like what's happening. Uh, what do you do? Uh, it's a difficult question. At some level, there's not a whole lot you can do. Um, if you want to buy a car, you have a very short list of car companies that you can go to, and, and they're all more or less on board with this. That's not to say there's nothing you can do. So, for example, you can look into whether your bank is supporting ESG goals, and, and most of the big national banks are. Uh, your alternative is you can bank with a community bank. Um, you can bank with a local credit union. Um, there are, uh, for example, Patriot Mobile is, uh, you know, a, a conservative um, phone, mobile phone operator. So you can shift your service to that. If you, for some reason, don't trust the Walt Disney Company to produce content that's appropriate for your young children, you might look at some alternative content creators who are producing more viable content and things like this. So there are things that consumers can do on that level. Obviously, uh, you know, if a lot, of these, uh, a lot of these efforts are coming at the state level, 
You know, that is, is, is more power that you have at a local level that you can support uh, state officials and reach out to them uh, and, and get involved in, in state elections. You know, there's so many families, I would in include mine as well, that, you know, might not have been all that political 10 years ago, uh, but their parents. And because of all the things that were revealed about what's being taught in schools during COVID, suddenly they're becoming political and they're getting involved with school boards and things like this. So in a way, um, you know, these systems are very huge and there's tens of trillions of dollars in the full weight of, of the government and, uh, you know, against you, but um, we're not completely helpless in this and there are things that people can do even on a local level. Well, that's, that's kind of the, the message that I've been hearing from a lot of people is just if you see things you don't like, get involved at the local level and then there will be an actual trickle up effect as well if a lot of people actually do that, whether it is leveraging their, their very small purchasing power or actually exercising their, their ability to gain political office or whatnot. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting because as we saw with, with uh, you know, with Bud Light, um, you know, also with Target, um, even to some extent with Coca-Cola, you know, they had 30% of their customers saying, you know, we don't appreciate that you're getting involved in, in state issues with voting rights laws. Um, so, you know, consumers can make individual decisions. My sense of this is that consumers are not actually saying we want this company to be conservative. We want them to be Christian or we want them to have a, any particular view on, on gender or whatever. I think what consumers are saying is if you make beer, just make good beer and, and that's all I want you to do. And, and, and if you're making, you know, fizzy drinks in your Coca-Cola, just do that. Like we don't want to have the politics shoved down our throat. Kevin, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, a final thought? Um, you know, fundamentally, I, I think this is a clash of ideologies. And, and uh, you know, on the conservative side, uh, we have people that believe the purpose of government is to, is to secure our rights. And the purpose of companies is to serve the shareholders. The ESG movement comes from the progressive ideology, which basically believes that we should have experts, whether they're in companies or government or whatever, that are, are, tell us what to do. They come up with the best policies, whether it's COVID or ESG or whatever. And so this is the clash of the two ideologies today, much more than left wing or right wing. And so I think this is going to heat up quite a bit in the coming years. You're going to see more state officials speaking up and getting involved. You're going to see a lot of pushback from the ESG industry to, to, to continue to further this despite the opposition. You know, our founders believed, and I, you know, I, I think they're probably right, that the government exists to, to secure individual rights. They don't exist to invest in, in cars or tell us what kind of cars or stoves we should buy or things like that. And that the best policy is probably decided at the local level, whether that's education or health care or uh, things like this. So um, hopefully we can get back to a point where the government is doing what it's supposed to do and doing it well instead of doing a lot of things that it's not supposed to do and messing them up. Well, Kevin Stockland, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Jan, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you all for joining Kevin Stockland and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Janja Kellek. Thank you.